Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to introduce Leo Hickman to the podcast. Leo is director and editor of Carbon Brief, a leading website covering the latest developments in climate science, climate policy and energy policy to help improve the understanding of climate change, both in terms of the science and the policy response. Leo previously worked for 16 years as a journalist, editor and author at the Guardian website. Before joining Carbon Brief, he was WWF UK's chief advisor on climate change. Well, thank you very much, Leo, for taking the time to speak today to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Great. So I, what I really would like to talk to you fresh from COP23 is uh, get your uh, take on that, uh, what the key takeaways are, what, what are some of the simmering issues and how how we should uh, respond to, to the whole thing. Um, but maybe a, a good place to start would be just if you could talk a little bit about your background and, and tell me a bit about Carbon Brief. Yeah, sure. So Carbon Brief is um, a UK-based website. We have an office in London um, where we where we largely focus on trying to explain, really, um, in often quite great detail, what the latest climate science is saying in terms of new peer-reviewed papers published in journals, but also explaining the kind of wider landscape in terms of what is the policy response to that climate science. You know, what are we going to do about um, greenhouse gas emissions. So we we also cover climate policy, energy policy, both in the UK, the EU, and kind of all around the world, really. Um, and we have a particular focus once a year, I suppose, on when the UN gathers together, you know, thousands of people in in whichever city or country it is. It happened to be in in Bonn in Germany this year where they have that annual round of climate negotiations known as the Conference of the Parties or COP for short in the kind of lingo. And we at Carbon Brief obviously report that quite intensely because it's it's a it's a moment each year where you've got a lot of experts and scientists and all sorts in, in one place. So it's a dream for us really as, as journalists specializing in this subject to be able to go there and speak to all these people um and, and and then also publish what has become a bit of a kind of customary article for us that something that people kind of expect is a is a big detailed summary of what was agreed and what were the outcomes at, at the cop so that that's our that's carbon brief really we there are um let me think eight of us i think at the moment so we have there's myself um is the editor and we have two um, science writers we have two policy writers we have someone who specializes in producing kind of interactive graphics and visualizations and because we we specialize a lot with data journalism because as you can imagine with climate and energy there's a lot of numbers to explain and go through and then we also this year earlier this year we now have a u.s analyst someone called zeke housefather who's actually based in san francisco who is based with us permanently um and who is a is a climate scientist who writes which is quite a rare combination so <laughs> yes, yes 
Well, you, you've taken on quite a challenge there, Leo, to communicate science uh, and the science of global warming, because uh, I guess that is the the number one uh, thing that's apparent, isn't it? That 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 it is challenging, and that maybe what makes for a great scientist doesn't make necessarily for a great uh, science communicator. And you know, witness the tremendous uh, uh, polarity and 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 range of views and challenges. Um, and I, I interviewed earlier in the podcast per. Uh, uh, per Stockness, um, who who wrote the, this fantastic book about the, the psychological biases in and and you know and challenges in trying to you know uh, understand why people don't understand and, and don't believe in in global warming. But uh, I, I salute you <laughs> for your uh, commitment and, and 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 the work that you're doing there. So COP twenty three. Now, so what what were expectations uh, for for COP twenty three? I know COP twenty one was the very big one with uh, was it one hundred ninety five countries all agreeing. Um, so, what, what what were the expectations for COP twenty three? Well, in in a funny kind of way, they were actually fairly low because this was always seen, as you said, after the Paris COP in two thousand and fifteen, which was when the world agreed to um, basically to a framework to an agreement of what happens um, globally in terms of tackling climate change at the kind of the national level from the from the period of post post 2020 so in the period after that because before 2020 there are currently mechanisms such as the Kyoto protocol and the the, the secondary moment of that what is called the Doha amendment so largely regulations for and the kind of framework for the developed richer nations the bigger the bigger emitters but particularly the, the richer countries to get their emissions in check Whereas the Paris Agreement was a truly global agreement. So all the countries in the world all putting their own pledges on the table with something beyond 2020 called the ratchet mechanism. And that was probably the most crucial part of the Paris Agreement, this idea that every five years, like a grand game of poker, everyone lays their cards on the table and says, we are going to do X. And every five years, they have to they have to improve that and increase that increase that ambition and that's really what was being discussed in large part um at bonn at cop 23 this year and also to be honest at the marrakesh cop last year so what they call these the process cops so these are not big kind of moments of political drama where all the world leaders have to come together and kind of bang their heads together and reach um consensus these are the sort of rather technical cops in between where all of the negotiators sit down and hammer out the all important rules. And when we were in Bonn at COP23, one of the one of the buzzwords was this thing called the rule book. And this was essentially what what are the rules going to be um, for all the countries when they make these pledges in the period of the early 2020s? You know, how are you going to compare them? What metrics are they going to use? When are they going to do it? Who's going to do it? In what order? And all, all these kind of, as you can imagine, quite political questions in a way to resolve. They, That's what was being hammered out. And the deadline for sorting that all out is actually in a year's time at the COP in Poland um, in in December next year. So that's probably the big, big moment on the horizon where everyone's gearing up to. So that would be a full three years after the Paris Agreement. And that's that's the, the current deadline for sorting out all the rules. So a lot of the action in, in Bonn over the, the past fortnight or so was the countries kind of essentially putting all of their 
what they each believe should be the rules, and then the co-chairs that oversee the negotiations, putting all of those options into one huge document. It was actually like, I think it was 179 pages, essentially synthesizing all of the different countries' views, and then they have all of next year to sort of debate that. So that, that was probably going into the COP, one of the key highlights. But there, it kind of got a little bit sidetracked in terms of, from a journalistic point of view, what became more interesting was obviously with Donald Trump in the US signaling back in July that from his campaign pledge during the election last year that he, would, he wanted to withdraw the US from the Paris Agreement. Um, and everyone's eyes, particularly the journalists' eyes, were on what would the U- what would the US delegation be doing in Bonn? How would they yes. play it? What would be what would be their attitude to these talks, given that their their president had made this quite dramatic signal to the world back in July. Um, so all eyes were kind of on the US delegation um, in, the, in the first few days and into the first week. And then they held what has now become, I guess, a slightly somewhat notorious side event on the Monday of the second week where they, there was a White House-sponsored panel in which they invited what they described as clean fossil fuel advocates um, <clears throat> to come onto the stage and explain why they think that coal and nuclear and other forms of um, power generation gas um, are the way forward, which obviously, as you can imagine, didn't particularly go down well with the, with the, <laughs> with the range of people that had gathered at the COP. So that was a kind of a moment of high drama and it was interrupted by protesters um, and it, it certainly became a sort of focal point of the talks. In terms of the actual emission targets, should we say emission reduction plans, I mean, uh, does it matter that at the moment, you know, that uh, the kind of pledges that so far don't seem to be anywhere near what's required to, you know, to hit the targets? Well, of course, yeah, it definitely matters. And that was a big thing that is always hanging over these talks. It, it, it hung over this this year's talks. It did it did in Marrakesh last year, and every year UNEP, the United Nations in, in, Environment um, Program, they publish something called the Gap Report to yeah. be timed with the with the annual COPs, um, and that kind of says what it is on the tin. It's it's them pointing out what the gap is between what the countries are pledging they what they're going to do and what against their their Paris goal of actually keeping temperatures since the pre-industrial era well below two degrees and ideally to 1.5. And they're currently rather way off. So that's why the ratchet mechanism of the Paris Agreement is so important, because the idea is that you these countries keep increasing and ratcheting up their ambition and their efforts to the point where we it's more deliverable, that, that Paris goal. So that that is it is important, and it is always in the back of everyone's mind that the the current round of pledges are just not good enough. I think various estimates say that, that you know if the world will probably be nearer three degrees of warming yes. rather than their ambition to keep it well below two. Yes, yes, and I guess the another issue probably I suppose you're looking forward, but also you know uh, looking back a little bit and some of the financial commitments I guess from Copenhagen, as you mentioned, the Doha Agreement, you know, seem to be still trailing 
um again how important is that and is there signs that you know uh that that's going to be resolved that people are going to step up to the uh mark and 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 you know keep their financial commitments well, you know, as you say, the, the financial commitment that came out of Copenhagen back in 2009, which is essentially by 2020, the, the, the richer developed countries should be, be between them putting on the table um, 100 billion US dollars a year. Now, that, that often gets the, the, the nuance of that number gets lost often, but that, that's not just public money, that's also private, mobilized private finance as well. Yes. Uh, so it, get, it gets very complicated very quickly about what, what you mean when you try and tot up to see whether we're near that 100 billion or not. Right. But, right. Um, <laughs> but um, no, that is, is, that again is an ever present, along with the, the gap between what the target is and what the, um, the pledges are adding up to. There's also the issue of finance obviously always hangs over these talks. And, and actually in Bonn, that was actually one of the more surprising issues that flared up right at the very beginning um, of the talk. So everyone always knows that finance is going to be a big issue. But there was a notable push just before the COP started um, by the developing um, countries that they wanted more action on what they call pre-2020 action so that as it says, the period before yes. 2020, when the Paris Agreement formally starts, they want to see a lot more action, both in terms of what the richer countries are doing in the way of financial offering, but also in what they're doing and actually mitigating their own emissions. And this became one of the unexpected sort of um, dramas of the first week was where that the talks were arguably held up for quite a few days with with this kind of spat over pre-2020 ambition. And in, 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 and when it concluded after the fortnight, you could actually argue that the, the developing countries actually won the battle on this because the wording of the text and the agreement that came out, which is traditional at the end of every COP, there'll be some kind of text or document that gets um, gaveled by the, by the chair of the talks. Um, that did actually have quite a, a lot of stress saying... Um, on it saying that the richer countries must in next year and just before um, the 2020 deadline then there must be an assessment of where the finance stands and where the pre-2020 action stands so that so the developed countries the richer countries got slightly it looked like slightly surprised and then boxed into a bit of a corner on this in the negotiations and I think a symptom of that personally watching the way the negotiations were playing out is it was very noticeable that without under a under Barack Obama there was strong leadership on climate change obviously um, yes. he was a key architect of the Paris Agreement but with that gone and with Trump effectively saying he wants out of the Paris Agreement and sending a very low level um, sort of US delegation compared to previous years it felt like um, that meant that the developed countries were in a weakened position. And with Angela Merkel also completely um, got her focus on her on her troubled coalition talks, um, it, it felt like that the, the developing nations, particularly led by China, actually sort of snuck in there and actually stole a bit of a lead in the negotiations. And that was a very interesting bit of uh, some sort of interesting dynamic of this year's talks to see that a weakened US and therefore developed nation kind of coalition 
um, was was strongly counteracted by a Chinese-led um, kind of coalition of of the developing kind of poorer countries. Yeah. So that yes. to, to me that was a kind of a highlight, if you like, of not a highlight, but a kind of a thing that was note notable um, yes. within this year's talks. Yes. Yes. Uh, the, the emergence of China um, is very interesting, and I guess uh, what, what what do you make of China's actual you know commitments uh, to 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 you know. Uh, change in reducing climate change and uh, global warming and and so forth. Um, it's 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 got you know it's uh, asserting itself certainly. Um, what's your kind of picked sense of it? Well, kind of as ever with China, it's very difficult to 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 present a sort of very simplistic view of what what's going on. Um, my 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 own sense is that. They are taking climate change seriously. They have had some epic, you know, air pollution incidents in their big cities, and a lot of that's been driven by burning coal close to those cities. So they they have their own domestic um, reasons for doing it. I think there's also a bit of geopolitical opportunism going yeah, on yeah, with the yeah. in countering the, the, the sort of the Obama into the Trump era. Um, and their positioning as a sort of lead, in a leader role amongst a key block of kind of and a large block of countries, um, but obviously we know that you know, over the last decade, fifteen years, China has been growing its economy at quite a quite a rate, largely well, largely supported through the burning of fossil fuels, yes. um, and I think I, I do you know I I think. The penny has dropped that, that that can't go on even from in, in terms of their own you know air pollution incidents so it does feel like they're turning the tide but it's a it's it's a, a big tanker to turn because you've got um to get off coal which is what in the near term essentially what most action on climate change in the near term essentially means getting off coal as fast as you can and switching away from coal in in very simplistic terms and that that's going to be a challenge for china but they are currently the world's largest investor in in renewables and so it's a complicated and sometimes contradictory picture with china but it, it does feel like this is not where China was, say, five or ten years ago. It's a very different China now in terms of their attitude to, you know, emissions and climate change. Uh, what What are the tensions, would you say, between the developed and the developing world? Well, it's it's been there ever since 1992, when the UNFCCC, so the UN Framework or the Convention on Climate Change, that was when it was agreed and on the back of the Rio um, summit. And ever since that moment, there's been this kind of concept of what they call differentiation or bifurcation, as it's, it's been called um, more recently. This idea that the world is divided into two groups, the rich and the poor. And that's been a, I mean, it's literally been a very divisive, it's a divisive concept, obviously, because it's dividing into two different groups. But it has actually been very divisive in these talks over many years, if not decades. And one of the, the, the successes of the Paris Agreement back in 2015 was that it was seen as the first moment where the, the issue of differentiation was erased. And for the first time, all the world stepped together as one and said they were going to do, to do this. Whereas before then, under Kyoto, 
protocol in the late 1990s, it was very much, it was just the rich developed countries that had to act. Um, and likewise, with Copenhagen, with the, the pledge for the 100 billion a year by 2020, that was also another issue of differentiation where the world was divided into rich and poor. So, and I think, to sort of go back a little bit what I was saying before, that was one of the notable things that came up at the COP this year in Bonn that was hosted, or the presidency was held by Fiji. Um, it was noticeable that that differentiation issue crept back in again. So it was the poorer countries basically saying quite publicly, you rich countries are not doing enough in the in the period before 2020. Um, and it and they were making it was interesting they were making the kind of the moral case that that actually been this year a lot of countries you know including the US have been struck by extreme weather events and damaging costly events both in terms of human lives but also you know infrastructure being damaged and they used those examples to say look we're already experiencing some of the impacts of climate change right now we're having to pay and we're having to pay the costs of these you know you rich countries need to you know step up on on your previous pledges from previous years a put the money on the table but also you know work harder to reduce your emissions because this is a, a global problem that needs urgent action it was very interesting watching them making that argument again which felt like they were sort of driving in that that differentiation wedge back into the discussions a bit. And I think that's going to be one of the things to watch out for in the in the year or so ahead, particularly, as I said before, with Trump dropping the ball in terms of leadership, it feels like this has given them a kind of opening to sort of to drive this issue back into the talks. Yes. Yeah. I guess I was just wondering about the uh, the degree to which the states and cities in America um, can take up the the, the mantle uh, in terms of fighting uh, global warming. Yeah, that's a very important part of I think the response to Trump um, has been the sort of almost remarkable um, resistance to his his pledge to pull pull the US out of um, Paris is has been this this kind of coalition of states, cities, companies, all sorts really, um, saying, no, we're, you, you may be the president, but we're actually going, there's actually, you know, America's a huge country with many different voices and actors, and we're going to come together and actually try and deliver the US pledge with or without you, kind of Donald Trump. And it, it's been a very defiant, um, attitude but it's been very fascinating that someone like Donald Trump can actually act as a sort of catalyst almost as a mobilizing force to galvanize people to drive them forward to um, sort of tackle climate change particularly in, in the US and I think it's interesting because some people actually argue that if Clinton had won that Hillary Clinton had won that election we might not have seen that kind of reaction and that kind of determination to push on after the Paris Agreement within the US to tackle climate change. So yes. it'll be interesting to see how the historians look back on this period and to see what, you know, was Donald Trump actually what the world needed to rail against? Um, <laughs> did they yes. need this kind of baddie, this kind of, this kind of, you know, good versus evil type stereotype to, to yes. actually mobilize and rally against. And I, and I think there's probably actually something in that, you know, yes. looking back a year or so after his election. Interesting. Um, yeah. 
that you you can see that and actually we carbon brief we've actually published analysis over recent months showing that if if the various um um states and cities that have have got inside this um, so-called we're still in coalition actually do what they say they're going to do it could actually go a long way for the US actually delivering its pledge that was made on in the Obama era for the Paris Agreement yeah so it, it's yeah fascinating it's not, quite <laughs> clip, yes. it's not quite as clear cut as saying Donald Trump is a disaster for yes. the climate um, yes Yes. What, what about the UK? Um, any in, insights in, in terms of uh, what they said, what came out of the talks? Well, the yeah, the UK is obviously with Brexit and things like this kind of in, in a very interesting position at the moment, because traditionally in the last 10, 20 years, the UK has really driven the EU's negotiating block within these talks um, as being a kind of leader in the EU on climate action and having obviously the Climate Change Act from 2008 and actually having legally some legal climate goals on these sort of five-year carbon budget sort of cycles. Actually, very in, in a way, the Paris Agreement was a, almost like an echo echo of the UK's own framework for dealing with climate change. Um, but with you know, with the Brexit uncertainties and everything hanging over the UK at the moment, it, it, it has been interesting to watch um, what the UK does. But their main moment at the COP really was the announcement on the Thursday of the second week where they came together with Canada and announced that they were forming or inviting other countries and subnational actors to join them in this kind of coal phase-out coalition. I think they called it the push, Pushing Past Coal Alliance. Um and the UK has obviously already signalled that it wants to phase out all coal power generation by 2025, and other countries have done that. But it was essentially a way of just recognising that all these countries are, um, I think there was sort of 20, more than 20 countries and states, etc., came together for this moment on the Thursday for this for this particular launch. So that was probably really the only moment where the UK had a sort of moment in the spotlight. But in terms of what they were doing behind the scenes and the negotiations, the UK's always been keen on making sure if we go back to the thing I mentioned earlier about the rule book for Paris, they're they're very hot on making sure that the rule book is fair, transparent, you know, scientific scientific metrics are used etc etc so kind of classic british you know stick by the rules type of attitude to um to to this whereas you know some other countries are you know not so keen let's say to have you know very transparent and open rules and fair rules that they would like it to be a little bit more opaque yes <laughs> yes and and as far as the rule book is concerned, to what extent are 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 different countries committed to the process of developing the rules? Presumably, that's still on uh, ongoing. And how does that is it the Talanoa uh, fit in? Uh, that's presumably again something that's that's unfolding and and over the next couple of years. But what is that, and and, and why does that matter? Yeah, I think that the Talanoa dialogue, as it was as it was renamed in at the COP, it was formally called before that the facilitative dialogue, which is a terrible name, but um, <laughs> it is what they, which thankfully the Fijian presidents of the COP this year um, renamed it the Talanoa dialogue, which sounds a bit more interesting. But essentially, what it is is a kind of like a dress rehearsal 
a one-off moment dress rehearsal for next year um, where the countries will come together and cut it's 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 hard to describe because it doesn't really, and that's kind of the point really, it doesn't really have any hard rules about it, but it's essentially, it's a gathering of the countries where they come together and showcase their own domestic examples of what they've been doing. But what it isn't going to be doing is going to be a sort of formal assessment pro process where everyone's um, efforts will be added up, totted up, and then sort of judged, if you like, from on high, which is what the... The, what they call the global stock takes that will be forming or will, will form the five-year ratchet mechanisms after 2020. That's that is what will happen, and that's what the the current discussions over the rule book are all about. Um, but this Talanoa dialogue will be a one-off moment next year, and it will actually last throughout the whole of next year, and then conclude with a kind of high-level political moment at the Poland COP um, in December next year. And it's effectively a, a round table where countries come together and say what they've been doing and um it, it it's kind of hard to know exactly what the, the conclusion or output will that be it's a little bit vague if, if we're being honest what what it's going to be but it's i think the best way of describing it is a bit of it's a bit like saying it's a dress rehearsal for that moment in i think it's 2023 where the first um pledges of the next round of pledges will come in and then the first formal stock take which will be the first moment where there will probably be some on high finger wagging about who's doing what and where people need to do better great great what what needs to happen uh, and what should we look out for for uh, over the next year to cop 24 well there's there's obviously on a formal level there's this there's this process called the talanoa dialogue as we were saying this yeah. kind of this dress rehearsal of the the global stock takes that will begin in the early 2020s so that that's going to be interesting um but i think materially more interesting than that from my point of view there's a very crucial report science report that's going to be coming out in october um next year um published um at the launch in south korea which will be the ipcc's special report on 1.5 degrees and that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, were specifically invited to, to write this report as part of the text within the Paris Agreement. And I think that's going to be a real focal point next year for everyone working on climate change, because it's going to show quite starkly the difference between a two degree world and a 1.5 degree world, and also the difference in terms of impacts, but also the difference in terms of what needs to be done to 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 deliver a 1.5 world and it's going to be to say it's an uphill task is is putting it you know putting it lightly so that's going to be a key point and i think another thing to watch out for next year will be jerry brown the governor of california has called for a conference in california a climate conference in september so just a few weeks before that 1.5 report by the ipcc and that's going to be another moment where this is a, a kind of um, snub to the, the Trump-type attitude to um, climate change from within the US. And I think that the talk is that he's going to invite you know, heads of state. So di diplomatically, this is going to be a very interesting moment where heads of state might come to California um, to talk about cl their climate change ambition and action. Um, right on the, you know, it, within the, you know, the the national boundaries of of the Donald Trump presidency. So 
that's going to be another another moment to watch next year, I think. Great, great. Very interesting to get your perspective on that. Are you optimistic? You mentioned the challenges facing Western political leaders, uh, leadership and the lack of leadership at the moment. And is there a kind of uh, toned down Paris Agreement or is it not all or nothing, but is it uh, something that we need to, you know, go for? I mean, clearly the implications, uh, and, and as you say, this report in next next October will will clearly highlight that. But um, is there a, 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 a what am I trying to say? <laughs> not a plan B, but a, a, another version if they, if if they don't, because you know there are a lot of signs, aren't there? Really, that it is going to be challenging to meet meet the the the, the, the targets set. Yeah, I think if you ask anyone who works in this space, they'll have they'll have down days and up days and pessimistic <laughs> days, optimistic days. But I think it was it one thing that was quite noticeable again from the COP this year was the it was it was kind of interesting that there that you kind of got the sense that with the sl- ever slow grinding process of the UNFCCC climate talks is that it kind of beginning to feel that the sort of real world economy might actually be beginning to overtake this process and working at a slightly faster pace. So you, you, you know, you hear about electric vehicles, you hear about um, the, the falling or plunging price of solar and other renewables. And you, and you wonder sometimes whether this process is just going to be overtaken by the real world kind of reality and economy um, that's happening. I mean, that, that's putting the hopeful side on it in terms of whether the energy transition that's going to have to take place to sort of, to meet the Paris temperature goals um, can um, overtake the, the actual Paris Agreement process. I mean, in reality, they'll probably both work in unison, so one will nudge the other, you, you, you suspect. But it, it, it's certainly interesting times, and as a as a journalist, it's probably the most interesting topic I can imagine working on because it's it's kind of got everything. It's got science, diplomacy, drama, human psychology. It's got yeah, you know, all, all sorts in there. It's ne- it's ne- there's never a dull moment when you're reporting on climate change. Yes, yes, absolutely. What next for Carbon Brief? Well, it's a, it's a good question. We're we're currently working on a week long special of articles explaining climate modelling. So what kind of what this is all ba- what everything is based upon? All all of these so what the scientists say is going to happen in the decades ahead is all based on climate modelling. So we're doing a really deep explanation of you know what is a climate model, how do they work, the history of climate modelling, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and lots of interviews related to that. Right. So that's, yes. That's coming up in the next few weeks. So that's our kind of main focus really at the moment but you know that the new the new science never stops it keep it keeps being published so that's always our bread and butter really is is just to keep explaining the fast moving world of climate science there's there's so many we we, by our own estimation we think there's probably every single day there in the peer-reviewed journals there are probably about 100 papers published every single day that in some way shape or form touch on climate change Gosh, you have your your work on, uh, cut out there. I, I look forward to those uh, uh, pieces on, on the climate modelling and uh, I, I wish you the very best of success uh, with it all. And thank you so much for uh, sharing your insights today, Leo. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.